0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books and Pop Music. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. My guest for this episode is author Steve Miller. He has written Detroit Rock City, The Uncensored History of Rock and Roll in America's Loudest City, which was published by DeCapo in 2013. In the pre-interview, I had a chance to talk to Steve about what he's done in the past, and it turns out that Steve is a reporter with a long track record record, of covering true crime, and he's also written a couple of books on true crime as well. And after hearing that, things started to really click to hear me about Detroit Rock City. One thing that this book really brings to light is the dirt, the grit, and the real rough edges of rock and roll that I think get left out of a lot of books that end up trying to sanitize rock music. Steve has done a really wonderful job of collecting a long list of Real rock luminaries, including Iggy Pop, among others, who he talks to in this book, promoters, fans, and the like. It's really a great read, and one of the things that I think gives it a particular um, appeal to me, and I think anyone else who will pick it up and read it, is that Steve himself, before he became a reporter, actually was a member of a punk group from Michigan, which toured – throughout the united states uh ended up in los angeles as you're here in the interview and recorded a couple of very very now rare punk singles which would be um in everyone's best interest to comb their bedrooms to see if they find because they're worth quite a bit of money well i will let the interview roll now thanks a lot for listening and here it is hey steve how are you doing how are you i'm good on? thanks for taking the time for uh come on the show i appreciate it um we're gonna be talking to you today about detroit rock city and um usually we start off the interview i by asking you to um, tell us a little bit about your background, and then how you came to write this book.
1: All right. Well, I'm a journalist uh, for 20 years. I've been, uh, been in daily newspapers and uh, and all that, doing you know, been a national national reporter, doing serious stuff, you know, death, murder, the whole thing. Um, and uh, and so I've written a few crime books, true crime books for Penguin Berkeley. Um, I got, uh, you know, I, I've been doing more magazine work lately, but, uh, but when the, the, the opportunity for this book popped up, I was, uh, you know, it was kind of like a vacation, you know, no more, no more grim, not, well, it's, it's, it's not as grim as some of the other stuff I write about. So, um, so this stuff, I'd always been in, in music. I was a, in a band called The Fix. That was the first, one of the first touch and go bands, um uh, in 1980. And so, uh so so I've always followed music and, and you know, I'm a huge fan. I've written about music over years. Uh I've been an associate editor at uh Your Flesh magazine since nineteen ninety one and uh and so on and so uh so it seemed it seemed fairly natural to write something about the uh, place that I the area that I grew up in. And uh so that's how we landed with uh with Detroit Rock City.
0: Well, it's a great read. I've uh, I learned a lot from it. And um, one thing I was going to ask you, just as a uh, way to start about the book, is when you look at the history of uh, Detroit's music. I mean, I immediately think of Motown. You can go back to Del Shannon and do a whole look back even further. How did you um, and presumably your editor decide to sort of focus the book on the '60s forward?
1: Well, I had to focus it. I, it was my idea because that's in the proposal. I said, "Listen, we got to we got to really, really kind of." narrow this thing down because Detroit's uh, musical history is so, so diverse and, and storied. And, and, you know, I, I, you, there's no way you'd ever finish a book writing uh, comprehensively about Detroit's music. Um, but uh, so, so I said, you know, well, let's, let's do what we know here and we'll just focus on the rock and roll elements of it. You know, if you've got a, you know, generally you got a big guitar, which is, you know, prominent in Detroit, uh, you know, you're, you know you're part of the scene, and that that's always been the way it's the, the way it was or is. Right. Um, so it was. You know, we just kind of cut in. You know, I just said, look, this is this. I'm going to approach this. This is going to be, you know, uh, you know if you're gonna if you're gonna rock, we're gonna you're gonna be in it. But if you're, you know, Motown, we couldn't touch that because you know that's been done before, and you know. And the rap, no, not so much. You can't do that. So you know, I decided to stick stick with this.
0: Yeah, and the uh, the cover of the book is great, and of course it uh, has Iggy on it, which announces to uh, any any reader what the uh, the subject matter is really going to be about. There's no confusing what the the focus of the book is.
1: Yeah, he's kind of the you know he's kind of the man. You you notice in the book there there were times when I was doing interviews and everybody wanted to talk about Iggy. Right. Right. We're talking about these are insights. It's in an oral history format. You know, I I figured I didn't want to give it away um and uh and these people could tell tell the stories really really well anyway but um but just yes, every time everyone, every time i'd have an iggy story I, I i get left out you know half you know
0: yeah he uh yeah he is one of those you know keith Richards style characters who uh should have died 10 deaths over and has been uh around and has done so much so it's uh, yeah people always want to know about uh iggy's and uh, his his stories
1: Absolutely, yeah. And they're always good stories. Too. Absolutely.
0: Um, well, let's start by talking a little bit about the um, the beginnings of the book, which I noticed really to me as a historian, um, what leapt out was the, the auto industry. And you really seem to be linking up the industrialization of Detroit in the 50s and the 60s as sort of heavy um, motor city – Realities for everyone who lived and worked there, and how that sort of shaped the music. What, what's your take on um, how Detroit's character as an industrial city shaped the sound and the music of Detroit?
1: Well, you know, I mean, if you've ever heard, if you've ever heard a Fender being stamped, you know, you realize that that's a, it's an incredibly cool noise. Yeah. And uh, and and then there's there's water's poured over it, and there's a whoosh, there's a huge slam, and then there's a water's poured over it, and there's a whoosh. And it's kind of like a guitar chord and some cymbals, you know and uh and it's it's just it's really you know theres there's a lot of noise going on in Detroit, and there always has been um it's a very loud loud place and uh and, and the auto factories of course were the uh you know were the generators of of amazing amazing noise, and then also pretty amazing despair. I mean, there's a <laughs> there's a pretty bad fate, I, I, I would think, and, uh, to, uh, and to some of the characters in, in the book explain a pretty tough fate to be resigned to living your life working in a factory on the line. You know, we've got uh, there's a ton of soul deadening jobs out there, and that's just one of them. Right. And uh, so a lot of the, the people that got into this music were trying to escape that fate because they saw their dads and their grandfathers, you know, uh, live these lives of 30 years an hour. And, I mean, going there day and you know and uh, and so in fact like I said some of the guys told some stories about it some of the people who uh, avoided it and some of the people who actually spent time on the line um, Talking about, you know, how they couldn't wait to get it and get off, and uh, and the music was providing a great
0: t- a great outlet for it. Yeah, it's a really great point you made about the the sound of the line because I hadn't really thought about it that way. I was uh, thinking more about the absolute regimentation of being um, part of an assembly line process. Is that you you know you can't stop the line, you can't go, hey, I'm going to have a cigarette, you know, right now. And it's that <laughs> imagine that life of being 40 oh, hours. Oh,
1: they, they did. Oh no, they did. They did that. It's like if you if you do want a
0: cigarette, it doesn't matter. If you you're, you're on the line, you
1: you got your to screw on. Hey, you take a cigarette, you go out. You know, that's all right. Don't worry about that. The union will make sure you're okay.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. That's of course another part of the the story here. The uh, but I was I was thinking about the just the regimentation of that um, that life. I yeah. mean, it was obviously yeah. you you are part of that larger organic machine of the factory, and so yeah, I think that would speak to uh, the need to to, uh, to try to blow off some steam, no doubt, with uh, some loud music.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and a lot of it is they were going to see, you know, the early rock and roll acts, and they were going to see them, and they were like going, you know, I could do this, you know, that yeah. kind of thing, and thinking, well, I sure don't need to think about working in a factory now. You know, these were people, a lot of you know, people like maybe with little, you know, they were, well, I can maybe go to college or something like that. But right. now, what are you going to learn to do there? Just the same thing everybody else learned. So, so it's a, it's a lot of same. A lot of fame there, right? And, uh, and these these are these are at the beginning, very beginning. These are very courageous, courageous uh, individuals getting out there and, uh, and making making noise.
0: Well, I think um, in terms of courageous, no one in, uh in the scene, or no one in the scene was more courageous than the guys in the MC Five because they definitely stuck their necks out there politically. Um, yeah, I was curious. You know, as someone who who uh, you know you grew up in Michigan, do you think the MC Five have gotten their uh, their due? By rock historians,
1: man, you know I think it's it's one of those great, uh, the, the, the great, greatly acclaimed band that still probably uh, never gets you know what it deserves in terms of uh, accolades. And really how much you know it's make great music is its own reward. So I mean, hopefully they've said they've come to terms with that. The survivors, everybody was in it, said, Lord, we just made great music. We don't need everybody to you know tell us how great we were, kiss right. our ass." Um, I'm sure they'd probably think, well, you know, this, this album, you know, the royalty checks could be a little bigger, but that, but that's about it. But yeah, they were that was incredible. And you, you got to remember, these five guys, they just they wanted to make a racket, and it didn't. They they weren't necessarily so. They talk about in the book. They said, well, we weren't necessarily in it to uh, to be politically active. Right. That was John Sinclair, their manager's idea. Uh, these guys just knew how to rock. They were just uh, tremendous musicians and, and they were very disciplined that they were real into it. And they were doing stuff that, you know, people nobody else really was doing. You know, you think about it all around the country, what was going on. Um, you know, you had, you know, the, the acid rock and, you know, the hippies and all that. But these guys were hippies, like, with, you know, with, with huge suits of armor and then and, and weapons, you know.
0: The uh, the thing, too, that really, really came to mind when I read about the MC5, though, is that you know, I think that I, what I was trying to get at with my earlier question is that I, you, when you think about the ber- the birth of loud and heavy music, I think there's sort of a just because of the success of classic rock as a as a marketable um commodity that they they you know bands like the Stooges and MC Five have kind of gotten lost in the shuffle and sort of thinking about you know what really made for heavy metal or for punk rock or whatever you want to say that sort of loud heavy music. You know, people think oh like the Who, Led Zeppelin. It's just that's I want yeah, I I wonder what those guys think about that when they. uh of course, they're not getting the checks, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. I don't. I don't know if they're if they're if they're uh, disappointed by that, but uh, I don't think they ever made music to. of well, they probably did in their own way making music to get popular. You know, there's a story in, in the book that really broke my heart when I heard it. Was um, like I was nineteen, maybe seventy six, seventy seven. Uh, Michael Davis, the bass player from the MC Five, who who's passed away now, was selling painter hats on the streets of Ann Arbor. To make a, to make a buck. And I'm like, man, oh man, you were in the MC5, man. That's what it came to, you know. And, and remember, you, remember the Stooges albums and the MC5 albums, you got, you could pick them up for a buck, two bucks, uh, in the, in the cutout bins, uh, shortly after, you know, in, in 75, 76. Right,
0: right, right.
1: Man so, I mean, there, so I, in, in that way, uh, you mentioned, well, they haven't, they, they're not exactly classic, art, but, the, but time has been kinder to them. Right. And I always wonder if, um, you know, you hope maybe the, there's a, there's a kind of a velvet underground reverie, uh, you know, help for, uh, for the MC five.
0: Exa- yeah, exactly. Then, the, mm-hmm. You know, you brought up, uh, you brought up A. E. earlier. And, um, one of the, the, um, folks you interviewed in the book and, Which I should mention, by the way, there's just a uh, huge range and scale in the number of people you uh, sat down and talked to. Um, But one of the things one of the people said in the book was that, uh, you know, when you look at the Stooges as compared to what's popular uh, at the time, 74, 73, you know, you think about Slade and David Bowie. It was such a very different, you know, the whole Glitter Rock, Glam Rock movement was so different than what Iggy was doing and the Stooges were doing, and I thought that was a really um, important insight to sort of say that they were they were underground in that sense. It was not mainstream music by any stretch of the imagination.
1: No, no, I think it wasn't, it was uh, Scott Ashman that said they were too rock for glam. You know? Right. You know, I mean, it just there was just no place to put them. And, uh, and you know, that and to me, the Stooges are, you know, probably one of the most influential bands in history. It's probably the, among the top five most influential bands in history. And um, if not, then some people put them in number one, uh, but uh, but yeah, it's it, it's true when you when you think about it. They, there's no pl- where do you where do you slot those guys? Mm-hmm. They can't you can't play them on the you can't play them on the radio. Right. Although at the time you know you had FM radio that was friendly to them at least in the Detroit area. But outside the market, ah, forget it. You know they had half, half sold out shows. You know that people wouldn't show up to their shows. You know and they'd play you know these places and that. They, they just never they never cracked it. You know.
0: Yeah, and, I, and of course, Iggy being a, a bit erratic, to say the least. I, there was always—I remember as a kid reading Rolling Stone magazine. This is probably like nineteen eighty, 1980, nineteen eighty-one, and you remember the Doors, of course, had had their resurgence for whatever reason because of the, the "No One Here Gets Out Alive" bio, and there was talk about the reformation of the Doors with Iggy as the lead singer. And I didn't really know who Iggy was at the time, but of course, even that didn't happen. And you think if you know if there was ever going to be a platform for Iggy to really become famous, that would have been it.
1: Right. Yeah. It would have been a disaster
0: no matter what, but
1: still, you know, I don't, I'm not crazy about those super group kind of, you know, lumpings, but it sure. sure would have been fun anyway. Right. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, yeah.
0: The, um, the other thing the book really, um, illuminates me, which I hadn't thought about is the fact that Detroit scene was not. Um, different in some ways from some of the other scenes like the LA scene, um, or the New York scene where you had migration of people there. I and mean, in Detroit, it was a city built by migrants, obviously, immigrants coming and black people coming from the yeah. South to work in the factories. But, um, you, you, um, interviewed folks from the Alice Cooper band and, uh, those guys made their way there from Arizona to, uh, to Detroit. You want, do you want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the sort of the journeys sure. that people took?
1: Sure. Well, in the case of Alice Cooper, I thought that was really. I mean, here's these guys from Phoenix, uh, and then they're in L. A. And then they're on the road, and then they're they're on a bill. And uh, the story goes in, in the book, as St. It, Clair tells it. Not maybe it was well one of the guys in, in Cooper told it. They're on the road. They're playing on a bill, and then they're Philly with the MC5, and uh, the, somebody in the, the five says, "Hey, you guys sound really great. You sound you need to go over really good at Detroit. But you got to come." You know, make your base in Detroit. So that's exactly what they did. Uh, they went out there, and it was the scene was such with the radio, Alice Cooper band came to town, and they put it out on the radio on the FM radio station. Hey, there's a band in town. They're looking for a place to stay, and uh, yeah, and so if you if you got some floor space, they'll stay there. Eventually, of course, they got a home. They got a house out uh, out north North City. And uh, that's where they, you know, were, were recording the demos. They did the demos uh, for uh, Love It to Death. But, uh, but yeah, bands, you know, bands did want to come, you know, uh, to, to Detroit because of course it was a great place to be and uh, it was a great place to play. You had great audiences, and as you know, they have, you know, you could really had a real built-in. This was a this was a hometown crew that uh, these people went out every night. They knew their band. They'd go out three or four times a night. Now remember some of the audience. The, the audience. It became later. The audience wasn't all members of the band. The audience was a real audience. They all had jobs. A lot of them had factory jobs. Man, they had money in their pockets. They were ready to go out and see some music, and uh, and so that. And they were and really. They didn't have to do a whole lot when they got to work in the morning, if that's when they went in. Um, so they could take could drink and and party as much as they wanted
0: to. I I uh, I know you said you had been uh, barraged with Iggy Pop stories, so I was going to have you tell uh, a story instead about the uh, Bob Ezrin visit to Alice Cooper's uh, their their home, their farm. I thought those were stories were really great, and, and if if for nothing else, to pick up the book, I'd encourage people to read the book for those stories. They were hilarious.
1: Oh yeah, Ezrin Ezrin was really really you know really <laughs> he was funny. I mean he was kind of a, a no. No BS, guy, man. But I, I I dug it where you you tell these stories. You talked about going out there. He had to he had to go meet the band, um, because they were getting ready to do Love It to Death. I mean, finally, he was they were going to do it, right? They're going to record Love It to Death, and uh, so he had to go to the house that I mentioned before, out on uh, it's on Brown Road, out in Pioneer, north of Detroit, and uh, it's (laughs) he's driving down the road. Remember, Bob Ezrin's a kid. He's a, he's like yeah. barely out of his teens at the time, and he's driving down this road, this old country road, and he he, he pulls into this place. And he try, I don't know if this is true or not. He goes, and there's this. He says something about a three-legged dog or something in the in the driveway, and he walks past that. and It's noon, and he said, everybody's asleep, and he walks through, and the first thing he he runs into is a. Uh, he tries to <laughs> he has a. uh like a, a light he's trying to find a light switch because it's dark. It's midday, but there isn't all the cover. The, uh, the 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 uh, windows are all covered up. He's trying to find a light switch and he, he runs his runs his, his hand over this ceramic cock and balls with a cigarette sticking out of it, which was stuck to the wall. So he's like, Oh God, okay, all right. And uh and then he's looking he looks he he turns on the light and he looks on the on the bed and, and there's like uh you know and it turns out I think it was uh, it was Glenn Buxton and some some girl. And it's just, all he saw was his massive hair. And he couldn't, you know, he couldn't figure this out. He's like, okay. They both had on nail polish and, you know, blah, 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 and lots of jewelry. And they were, he said something like they were dead or dead to the world or something. And, uh, next he goes through this other door and beat a curtain. And there's this dude standing there with a frog's head on. And it was Dennis Dunaway. And he just stood there and he looked at, it. Dennis Dunaway looks at him and he goes, ribbit, that's it, walks away. And so he's in this fun house, and I'm, I'm just thinking, and then, of course, we've got the masturbating uh, monkey, this <laughs> green monkey that was looking at him and masturbating, And which was which was, Alice later, he told me, he said, yeah, okay, we had all kinds of these pets and he said, that was <laughs> the monkey, which is horrible. Anytime a, a woman would uh, walk into the room, he'd start masturbating. <laughs> yeah, so I, anyway, I, that was the Alice Cooper house, no, and no that doubt. was Ezra's introduction. <laughs>
0: You know? No doubt. I mean, uh, yeah, Ezrin to me is, uh, to everybody is, is just a legend. I mean, for uh, all of his work throughout the seventies and into the eighties and stuff like that. But yeah, to think about the fact that, yeah, he was so, I hadn't realized how young he was that he was really a, a, a kid, literally like an 18, 19, 20 year old kid when he started this, this, uh, process of producing records. So to have him, yeah, thinking about this guy going into this house must have been, uh, I, you know, most people would have run. There's no question. 90% uh, of people would have run. Andy.
1: Yeah, man. Instead, he parlayed it into a, uh, you know, a a huge, uh, huge career.
0: No doubt. (laughs) Um, You know, speaking of uh, the scene more generally, too, the – Great part of your book. Um, that I think another thing that kind of gets lost in the shuffle when people think about Detroit is Cream Magazine. I'm not sure that, um, people who weren't grow, didn't grow up in the seventies or didn't grow up in uh, Detroit really think about Cream as a Detroit magazine. I know as an eight, you know, as a kid in the eighties, it didn't, that wasn't what I associated with. But, um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of the, of the magazine to opening the nation's eyes to the scene in Detroit?
1: Well, yeah, you know, I mean, cream, cream, was, in the book, we talk about how, the, how cream, is it going to be a, uh, the, the question was, is it going to be this, this little local rag, or is it going to be, you know, is it going to be national? How, how are you going to handle it? And, uh, and it evolved into this, it's wonderful. Um, <laughs> this wonderful answer to Rolling Stone yeah. is the is is way most people would describe it. And I mean, really, i mean if if anything demands an answer, it's Rolling Stone, the state old you know even then kind of the staid establishment uh you know bunch of they were just a bunch of establishment hippies, and whereas cream was operated by well actually real hippies who you were know, who were just you know who were from the Midwest, mostly a lot of them, you know and uh so I think good banks was a uh, Lester Bangs was an import, but for the most part, they were getting homegrown people to write stories about local and visiting banks. So you have, you know, they had a good story. So and so came through, and uh, and but they they do a great job of covering what was going on in Detroit. And there was plenty plenty of stuff going on in Detroit, so they had lots of room to move. Um, but uh, but yeah, in, in the book I did want to talk about that because I think Cream was just as uh as every bit as much rock and roll as the MC5, you know, for, as far as Detroit goes. Yeah,
0: I mean, they um, definitely, it, was, it
1: was fun. It was it was fun. It was fun sorry, I didn't mean to talk it, over too. you. well oh, that's okay.
0: The uh, thing I was going to say, too, yeah, that the book um, really does an excellent job of highlighting the fact that, you know, Cream was in some ways not really competing with Rolling Stone because they were presenting such a harder and more gritty take on rock and roll than, as you point out, the James Taylor, the Linda Ronstadt, the sort of glossier, you know, soft rock sort of sound that uh, that Rolling Stone sort of married itself to in some ways.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's right. It's, it's, it's true. I mean, and uh, those are... Um I think, and as I say, some of the players in their book say, like, yeah, we we really didn't like Rolling Stone. We didn't, you know, we didn't, we, we fancied ourselves as the answer to Rolling Stone. And, uh, I mean, if you grew up back then, I mean, reading Cream, a new issue of Cream was just an amazing thing. I mean, it took you places. Uh, and, you know, they would, they would be that, you know, one place you could read about Lou Reed and you could read about the Stooges. And, I mean, really in depth, good stuff. And, uh, I uh, just a terrific magazine. I still have a bunch bunch of the old ones. I I still look through them because they're just so much fun. You
0: know you know, despite um all of the great music that came out of Detroit in the late sixties, early seventies, I got the impression from a number of people who you interviewed for the book that they felt as if, you know, New York and L.A. kind of overshadowed Detroit, and the um, one festival which I didn't know anything about that uh, people pointed to as kind of the, the sort of how Detroit got written out of rock and roll history in some ways was the Goose Lake Festival, which was an amazing event. Uh,
1: what's I mean, your yeah. yeah, I mean, you think of it, think about this. I mean, this was uh, <laughs> Goose Lake was was a you know a, a multi day uh, festival that had really was. You know, I had talent on the level of, of, of Woodstock. You know, when you think about it, Jethro Tull, I mean, mm-hmm. from both, you know, Jethro Tull, Alice Cooper, you know, James Gang, the Stooges, uh, Brownsville Station, Flying Burrito Brothers, uh, Mountain, 10 years after, you know, to Chicago, uh, before they started to suck really bad, um, you know. At, at any rate, it, 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 it was this. this uh, it should have been <laughs> really. It should have been Woodstock because uh, because it seemed to me to be uh, you know kind of the you know, Mitch Ryder. Uh, you know you had these these this crazy bands. It was it was like Woodstock with uh, you know again it was the hard version of of, of Woodstock and. Um, yeah, it was it was big. It was, uh, like I said, it was a, it was a multi uh, August of nineteen seventy, a multi uh, multi day event, and uh, with a rotating stage, so you never really had you know silence. And the the idea was that's uh, the guy that I talked to the guy who one of the guys who put it on big production guys, he said you you put you go to the rotating stage because if if you if you want problems, you script the music. That is downtime equals that's when people start busting urinals, windows, and stuff like that. So. You just kept on rolling with the bands on there. Just, I guess, to appease the, uh, the fans so they wouldn't get crazy.
0: Yeah, uh, the, uh, but yeah, the book itself um, really brings to light the uh, reality that it worked. It worked so much better than Woodstock, as you point out, in a number of ways. They yeah. put up the fence. They didn't have another gate. Cre- I mean, they just it was a much better managed and run festival than Woodstock, and yet nobody knows about it.
1: No, no. And, and you gotta remember nobody covered it. Remember it was yeah. I think Rolling Stone went to some jazz fest or something like that. And uh it was a what, what is it? I think they uh <laughs> what's the Don as Don was pointed out to me? He said, Well you can go um, Rolling Stone, they couldn't get in because they weren't given. the people who putting it on. This is for the people. They weren't giving out comp passes to every media outlet, you know, that cash Because, you know, how back then, like, the media outlets would think, well, we'll get, you know, 20 pass. We'll give to our friend. We'll go. Maybe we'll write about it. Maybe not. Well, the guys that were putting on Goose Lake said, well, well screw that, man. We're just not going to give – you know, we're not doing up media passes. And uh, so when Rolling Stone couldn't get any, they went and covered the uh, Newport Jazz Festival.
0: Do you think some of that is um – you know, I live in the Midwest now. I grew up in the East Coast. Is is that part of that that flyover bias showing up as early as 1970 to sort of Yeah, it's happening in Michigan, who cares?
1: Yeah, probably. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I always thought that was a good thing because I mean, let everybody, you know, let us have a good time and, uh, and not have all of the, the, the 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 fakes come and show up and and, and ruin everything and act like they knew what, what was going on when they didn't. Um, so yeah, maybe. I mean, and I noticed it's you because know, it's, because, you know, it's because it's a normal history. I I, I not want to editorialize, but I did notice that the people, some people had that still carried that resentment. Yeah. And to me, if I were writing, I would be, you know, who cares? I mean, we don't need them. You know, you don't need you don't need a whole bunch of eyes and ears to make great music. Yeah. But I, and you understand, they they wanted to get the attention. They wanted that critical acclaim. Uh, but, uh, I guess writing it from, from a fan perspective, that's okay.
0: The, uh, point though, I would of course answer to those folks too. And, um, if I was writing the book, and Detroit is that, you know, there, there wasn't as if in the 1970s that Detroit didn't have its breakthrough acts. We should go through them. I mean, Grand Funk sold out Shea Stadium in 1971. Um, yeah. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the parts of the book. They're, uh, they're sort of a, uh, one of my uh, uh, favorites that I don't think again get enough, uh, enough s- s- due for what they did. Um, what's your thinking about Grand Funk's influence in the 1970s and their legacy today?
1: Oh, I totally, totally loved Grand Funk. I thought that, that Grand Funk Live album, uh, yeah, the first one, was really the MC5. I mean, it was, the way it was recorded, the way it was aggressively played, I thought it was without, it was the MC5 without the Revolution, yeah. which is what Dennis Thompson told me. Is he said we should have been a Grand Funk. Um, which I think was really true. I mean, it, uh, think they, they could have been just playing music and very well had a shot at that. And then had, had yeah, they had Terry Knight as a, mm-hmm. as a manager rather than John Sinclair. Um but yeah, I mean, Grand Funk, I, I can never think that they were very influential because they were taking from influences rather than giving. Mm-hmm. But, uh, they still, I thought, were just a tremendous band. And I included them because I thought they were every bit as, they, they, they sound like Detroit to me. I mean, that was, and they, they were, they were from the area. They're from Flint. Right up the road. You know. You can get there in, in twenty minutes if you're driving a good car.
0: Yeah. The uh what came to mind too is that I think if you ask people about um you know, I grew up in uh Queens when I was younger and he was uh to Shea Stadium a million times with my dad and uh you know he asked people, Oh, what bands sold out Shea Stadium? Say, oh the Beatles and the Who did in eighty two with the clash. Yeah. But I think that yeah, <laughs> just grand funk um yeah, I think people uh, don't remember them as big as they were, but they were so huge. And you're right; they did sort of um, put that Detroit sound out there for the entire uh, the nation who who embraced them.
1: Yeah, you know, the one thing they didn't do is they didn't tout their 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 roots so much. Now they they lived; they they never moved from Michigan. But I thought it was funny because they uh you know that they would and and they <laughs> they lived and they recorded their albums there even, but they they didn't really go out on the road and say you know nobody the critics didn't make much of a deal if they were from the Detroit area. Um, and nor, neither did they. So, I, which is again, that was probably Terry Knight at, at work there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, uh, just a just a tremendous tremendous band. I like the the fact that they record their album. And Don Brewer told me in the book about the story about uh, Todd Rundgren coming to town seventy mm-hmm. three uh, to to uh, to produce uh, American Band. And he, he said Todd Rundgren. It stayed at Brewer's apartment, which is in which is just outside Flint. And now they'd go to you know go to seven eleven and
0: there's Pat Rucker. That's a weird thing to see. Uh the the second one I uh, act I was gonna to touch upon, which uh of course he's in the news lately, is uh Ted Nugent I, we don't usually get too political on the new books network, uh new books and pop music, but uh we can. Um you know, <laughs> what's your take on Nugent then and what he is uh doing to his legacy or not doing to it today
1: oh i think i think uh, i mean obviously he was in the book you see there's a lot of people that just didn't like him yeah as a person i don't think his politics weren't that evolved at that point and his entertainment element was more based on music rather than just being you know outlandish and saying outlandish things um but uh <laughs> he didn't seem really well liked. it didn't appear that he was really well liked. he didn't People would say, well, he pay very much. His ego was out of control. Um, he, it's all of that. And, uh, but I think he, you know, he had the swagger and obviously he knew what it took to make music that, that, that was, that was, that was dynamic because the Amboy Dukes did some great stuff. Yes. Um, and that said, I mean, yes, he, he was also, though, along with Bob Seeger, uh, one of the groups that, you know, really emerged into, went platinum. Out of that, out of that era, mm-hmm. and uh, so you can't take that away from him. He managed to uh, parlay his uh, his skills into just massive worldwide musical domination. Um, well, what he is is uh, is now, it's, of course, he's an entertainer, and that's that's fine. But that's what music is now. It's more about entertainment than it is really about uh, substance. And I don't know. I haven't I haven't heard a Ted Nugent song in ages, so I had no idea what he might be up to. I do know I've interviewed him uh, for for various reasons over the years. And he's always uh, always candid, and he's always fun, you know. Um, but now he's something a little more calculated. Like you're expecting some, you know, you're expecting Uncle Ted to say something weird and uh, and crazy uh, politically.
0: Yeah, I saw him play. Uh play live here in in detroit in one of those package tours at detroit excuse me in tulsa and one of those package tours that came through here and uh you know part of me the sort of inter- the uh stage banner about president Obama's, i thought it was sort of shtick but i think he's sort of he sort of now he has to up the ante each time in this last round which the uh the subhuman mongrel comments were uh I, yeah i think it's sort of he's reached the sort of the limits of what he can uh get away with without too much pushback or maybe that's what he wants i'm not sure
1: yeah, isn't there a point where he, I mean, I have long gotten to that point. I'm like, who cares? Yeah, that's nice. That's very good. Yeah. You know, yeah. I just get yeah, I hear it, and I'm like, yeah, okay, well, good for you. Yeah. You know, I mean, right. I I'm, thank God we got we got you know we got the Constitution the projection of projection to say that's fine. It doesn't bother me. How was he by the way when you saw him play?
0: but he played all the hits. Yeah, I thought it was great. I had uh, his original cool. singer from the '70s, and I really, uh, yeah, I, you know, it was it was it's you know, but the thing is, it's it's divisive, right? I'm, I'm with people who, you know, or maybe not the. Most left leaning people in the world, but then you know, the things that come out of Nugent's mouth are so <laughs> raw, for lack of a better term. I mean, and so, so, yeah. you know, so cutting, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's difficult. And it takes, in some ways, you know, it, it takes away from uh, his uh, his ability to, I think, to uh, win over a crowd in some ways. I mean, the people like him, but you know, there's that 25% of the crowd who's, you know, basically going, fuck you, you know, under their breath.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's an interesting one. Yeah, he'd probably be better served if he just played because if, if you say, as you say, he he, he sounded good. So, well, what more
0: do you need? Right. Yeah. Well, Well, um, Bob Seeger, of course, the third one here, and uh, I I want to hear your take on Seeger, and um, you had some great interviews in the book. But for one point, I wanted to um, bring up is that. To me, Seeger represents what the record industry was in the 1970s. And for all the problems and all the ripoffs, I I certainly know those existed, that Seeger was able to kind of hang around on Capitol from 1969 to basically really 1975, 76, before the band broke with Live Bullet, as your book does um, a good job of showing.
1: Yeah, I mean, Seeger, I mean, yeah, yeah, you, could, you could, it's, it's easy to be pissed off at Seeger because, I mean, this guy, you know, it, you could say, well, he made it and he kind of sold it uh, in a way that was, uh, I remember, I mean, he, when he started doing big records, like big major label, I mean, big, huge Virgin records, they started to suck, which just, me <laughs> kind of said, you know, wow, did he, did he start to suck because everybody wanted him to? And that's what those theories was told the corporations told him to, but uh, the book kind of uh, I like the chronicle, like leading up to the time before, you know, before right. he, uh, he broke big, and that was uh, to me. That's entirely more interesting. Talking with uh, people like Charlie Martin, the drummer, the original drummer from the Silver Bullet Band, and and, and just what it was like going up the chain as, as they began to get more and more popular. And uh, and boy, I had a fun. That was a really a lot of fun to to chronicle that because I was really I'm not a figure fan at all. And so uh, talking to these guys uh, and getting through it, it was uh, it was really I, I learned I learned something. I, there are a couple points in this book where I really learned stuff, and I was really really engaged like a as a student more than anything else. And yeah. uh but but yeah, I like telling that story. I like weaving those stories together about the uh, the silver bullet band and how it happened in Bob's early days, you know, as what was his first time taking acid in the arboretum over at uh <laughs> over at U of M and things like that. Things that you don't think of Bob studio. nowadays, you look at Bob Studio, you're that's like, <laughs> what that was all about.
0: Yeah. You know, and you just Brought up something on my mind too is that I, I just got finished uh, talking to my students about the Bob Dylan uh, Chrysler commercial, and of course Seeger, as you point out, and Seeger sort of, for lack of a better term, sort of went very, very mainstream or sold out, if you prefer. Um, you know, with the with the Chevy commercials and stuff, but he was sort of you know ahead of the curve. He had the idea. He was like, Look, you know, Bob Dylan will be doing this in twenty years. I'll just do it now. Yeah,
1: he was like, well, listen, I know, I know, down the line. I don't. Well, I think the thing was. I didn't mind selling out my music anyway to be popular. Why don't I just sell it for a commercial too and show for trucks? Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. I, I want to spend time talking about the, the punk scene um, in Detroit. Like I said, I, uh, when we were talking the pre-interview, is that you have the uh, the unusual um, perspective of having been on that scene and been uh, a part of the hardcore – uh, scene. But I, before we get to that, I, I have to do one of my guilty pleasures, which is uh, power pop. And uh, I had no idea that the Runaways right. were from Detroit. And uh, of course, I grew up watching the, them the, on the, you mean the, sorry. Romant, the romantic. The romantics. romantic. The romantic. There you sorry. Go. Um, the romantic yeah, sure. were, uh, were from Detroit. Uh, a great story there how they broke.
1: Oh, yeah, man. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's interesting because they, you know, these guys were kind of, there's a, there's a, a post, um, what do we want to say, post early 70s malays. you know, the Stooges left, the MC5 broke up, and there was just nothing going on. And so you had like these kind of remnants of that era. And then you had newer, you know, there's some glam going on and, and, and people playing covers. And the romantics kind of sprung from this kind uh, of fallow period. And, uh, and, and yeah it was, it's it's kind of interesting to see how they just erupted in Detroit i mean they they were playing there's a great photo of them in 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 that book too uh them playing at uh, bookie's this little little club uh it was like probably it was Detroit CBGB's now uh, without the uh, great bands um and uh and, and, and the romantics just kind of sprung out of that doing this kind of mercy beat sort of you know what yeah, you know, power pop uh uh, thing that they did really, really well. And when you went to see them, I remember going to see them and thinking, uh, how great they sounded. How, I mean, they, the, the, when you saw them live, it didn't sound like the record. It sounded really loud. And, uh, and so, you know, in the, in the book we get, <laughs> get into, and, you know, it, I don't know why it led into the, uh, the red leather suits. And, uh, and I talked to the woman who, who put together those suits and, and this and how they, 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 when they first went out on the road, they, uh, they just wore one, they had one set. And each, you know, and so you yeah, you take them off at the end of the night and you put them back on, throw them back on the next night. And they were uh, encrusted with the bubacare.
0: Why, um, why don't you think that um, the Romantics breakthrough led to one of those classic feeding frenzies that you saw? I mean, with the Knack and L.A. and stuff. I mean, I was actually somewhat surprised that you didn't see more of a, a looking for another band like that because they, they really did break pretty big.
1: They they broke real real big yeah I mean they all had you know they they just they did really well I don't know you know I don't I don't know if that was a uh, you know there are flashes in the pan and remember the knack didn't exactly you know you had the knack and you had the shoes you had the records and, right. and all these bands um, but nothing I mean it's, there's there's these pockets of people who still have great feel to that sound which is, but I don't think it ever really really took off I think there was a there was a time like everybody said, wow, this is really great. And then everybody moved on real, yeah. real fast.
0: Well, well, tell us about um, and tell our listeners who I, I'm guessing probably don't know a lot about the Detroit hardcore scene. Maybe you can weave in a little bit of your biography and um, tell us about some of these great bands, which I think um, may have uh, gotten lost to history a little bit.
1: Well, yeah, well, it's, it's cool. I'm glad to hear you say it because the, the thinking was, haha they've read the beginning of the book and now they've read about you know the, the stuff a lot of people are fairly familiar with and it has new twists on it and uh, new voices in there and I thought well now that I get to, <laughs> this is an author, this is kind of a, a i guess i like what an author gets to do sometimes is and now I can actually see if people would be interested in reading about this uh, you know this punk scene the hardcore scene i was I was in a band a bunch of us so uh, were based in Lansing not far from detroit and we were uh, we started up a band and uh, called the Fix, and we just wanted to play this, this raging music. And uh, it was kind of an outgrowth of what was going on, you know, of, uh, you know late seventies like the mid late seventies, like Ramones stuff, and 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 uh, Dead Boys stuff. Only was we a little bit angrier, and uh, and they and there were pockets of bands popping up around the country doing this stuff. Then it came to Detroit, and we we went down. We'd play Detroit, and nobody'd show up. And then start bands started sprang up, and uh, and soon soon enough, Detroit had its own hardcore punk scene. And as usual, Detroit managed to take that just one step further, a little bit louder, a little bit more extreme, a little bit more aggressive, just like it did with the rock and roll in previous generations. And uh, and so this is a great chance to, for for me to chronicle that just through the voices of the people that were there, and how you know that that scene. Centered in Cass Corridor, which was really the same same place that the '60s scene uh, centered, and where you'd have little clubs and, and joints and places that you could uh, you know see see bands. And uh, you know, <laughs> it's it was it, history repeating itself. When I think about it, it uh, I mean, again, that that scene was very very uh, very important.
0: I think to music in Detroit as part of became the fabric of of, of the history. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I read your, your bio on your website, which we'll give out the address later at the end of the interview. But, um, I, uh, couldn't help but notice that you had, uh, mentioned that you had spent time in the van touring. And of course, uh, a big fan of, uh, Henry Rollins getting the van book. Would you like to share a couple yeah. of your, maybe highlights and lowlights of your, uh, adventures touring in a, in a van <laughs> in the early eighties?
1: Well, we, you know, we, uh, you know, we, we, um, At that time, there had been no bands really touring. The only bands that we knew of that toured were Black Flag, who we went and saw in Chicago in December 1980 to get their list and to meet them and say, can we get your list of venues? Because I don't know why we're getting this in our head that we wanted to take this music, this music that nobody wanted to see where we were. We'll take that on the road where nobody else will come see it. So I have, I still, am still trying to figure out the logic there. So, but we went to Black Flag and, and met Chuck and Chuck gave us his numbers and then we got Chuck to agree to come to play a show in Lansing, Michigan where we were based. And, uh, and so, uh, Black Flag came there and, uh, and that really, that, that show kind of cemented the scene in the, in the region, the hardcore punk scene. Um, we went on the road. We, we had a single that came out. Uh, called Vengeance. It was a seven-inch. And uh, we had 200 press. We melted down 15 on the radiator. And uh, the, the last one that I know of, the one on eBay, went for 4,200 bucks. Hmm. Um, so it's a collector's item now. Uh, we had really no records, no nothing. And we got a van and uh, we had nothing to, nothing to promote. We got a van and we set up shows for, you know, a hundred bucks a night, maybe. Maybe thirty bucks a night, and uh we just decided in uh, June of nineteen eighty one to tour through the hottest part of the u s um in our Ford Econoline, where the air conditioning went out oh, i think the second day and uh and we'd have to you know the the thing was you you learned you had to sleep in the van um you know, had one person had to sleep in the van you know you like crash on somebody's crouch or something but one person had to sleep in the van and, and we'd go through like phoenix and say well who's going to sleep in the van you know and so somebody you know you had really short straw you had to sleep in the van in phoenix you know outside because it was 120 degrees out um yeah i mean the, the, it, the, these these trips were filled with all kinds of crazy stuff. i mean your We're your coming into santa monica we're coming down this hill into la and uh i think craig is our guitar player he was driving he says because <laughs> You hear him like, you hear like air. He's hitting the brake of your air, you know, shooting. He says, <laughs> he looks and goes, well, we could hit somebody. And we're all looking at each other going, wow, we're really going fast. for this traffic to be coming up on us. says, so, yeah, we could be hitting somebody. And, uh, and we all really were like, you know, holding our breath. And finally, he's like, ah, emergency brake. He reaches over, yanks the emergency brake. The van slides sideways. And we didn't hit anybody. But, uh, it, it, the, these trips are filled with this kind of stuff. I mean, you'd always have breakdowns. You'd have, uh, you know, just, just sort of things. You'd miss gigs. I remember we missed a gig in, uh, New, uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. We ran out of gas about 10 miles from the, uh, from the place. We had driven straight from New Orleans. Um, so, you know, you had all kinds of stupid stuff that would be happening to you I, I constantly. Uh, when you put a bunch of people together and then you're playing music that nobody really likes or cares about. And you, you decided to pop into uh, Oklahoma city on a, you know, on a Wednesday night in, in July, uh, you know, things happen.
0: Where, where did you guys play in LA?
1: Um, we never played LA. We were there, we were coming into LA. We had a show at the Apollo with the circle jerks. We get there and the cops are already there. It's, daylight and and we get there and the cops are already there and so we we're uh we're like well you know what are we going to do you know we're talking to the jerks and they say well you know i think the show's going to get called off you know you guys want to do something so we hung out for a while then we went down we needed a place to we were going to the studio we recorded in la at uh i think the record lab i think something like that i don't know there's a place on hyperion and uh, we'd go in at like eleven o'clock at night to get to the good rate. We did three nights there. What um, came out was an EP called Jan's Rooms. I think we got seven songs out of it. Um, but yeah, you know, we you know, we went down to a Long Beach. We practiced. Uh, we rehearsed sort of for, for sort of pre-production at the T.S.O.L.'s place. They had a, a whole garage in the back of their house, and we went in and set up our gear, and turned on the gear and started off uh, into our first song and blew the, the whole power out for half the block. And then the guy in Jack said uh, from TSO, I said, your guitar is louder than our whole band. And we're like, okay, I guess we learned that in Detroit.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Thanks for sharing those stories. I think uh, sure. those are, uh, yeah, you have, you have a book in you right there. Another
1: one. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. So, uh, the
0: the book ends with um, discussion of, uh White Stripes, Jack White, uh, Kid Rock, and, uh, and Clay, uh, insane clown posse, which I didn't expect to pop up in the book. And um, what's your sense of where the scene is now uh, with the future Detroit rock music, and uh, where's it going? Do you think?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I say this because it's a, all the time, and it's, it's true. You can go to see a, a, a three band bill in Detroit, and you may not know uh, any of the bands, but it's almost a sure thing that at least one of those bands. It's going to be good, I and mean, you're going to walk out. It's very rare to go to a, a, something like that and go, "Man, all three of those bands suck." It just doesn't happen. Um But, but, the, but the, Detroit still will crank out good bands. I mean, you still see these 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 cool acts. Um You know, I, I would say anything Timmy Vulgar doing. Timmy Vulgar kind of, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it's human eye and uh, to these organisms, but. Um, anything he does is, is great. So there's there's always going to be people like that. I always say John Brannon, who was the singer for A Negative Approach and then The Hiatus. Now he's with, um, also doing Easy Action. Um, again, you're, you're, it's just really, really great music. And so there's, there's always going to be, you know, stuff that's uh, stuff that's better than, a cut, cut above what you might find in many of the other cities around the US. Um So future, you know, future, I don't know, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, we'll, we'll but you still have a healthy amount of live action uh, during any given week in Detroit for live use.
0: Yeah, the the one thing I was going to kind of toss out, which uh, maybe you'll think is a crazy idea or not, is the, uh, is the fact that there's been just so much white flight over the last 30 or so years that uh, Detroit's something like 82% black right now, too. I wonder how that might be, um, you know, urban blacks tending maybe not to prefer uh, the rock and roll that we uh, – we we would associate with Detroit's history. I didn't know how that was all gonna gonna factor out with the plan.
1: no no. I don't think so. I mean, I think you said what, what you've got. You still got this great core of. I mean, Detroit is a wonderful place to to live. By the way, that you can get in there and you can get a cheap place to live, um, and uh, and there's all kinds of places to play. I mean, it's just it's a great to, it's a great musical city. I I, I don't know if, if that uh, that would play into it because remember even when. It was, it was similar. The demographics were similar to when, you know, the, the strikes were planned and, and so right. on. Uh, when they're breaking too, so yeah, I don't. I don't see that playing much of a role.
0: The uh, typical last question we ask people is to talk about um, what they're working on next. So, what's what's next for you as a as a writer?
1: Well, let's see, Um right now I'm working on a true crime book on a case, actually it's out of Detroit. I, I do, I don't do all my books out of Detroit, um, but, uh, uh, but it just seems like there, you know, the weird stuff seems to happen there quite a bit. Um I'm doing a book, a true crime book, it's going to be my fourth for Penguin Berkeley, about a guy named Bob DeShera, um, which is kind of a, uh, he hired a guy to kill his wife, and then, um he, um Oh, he allegedly hired a guy to kill his wife, then he hired a guy to kill the guy who he allegedly hired to kill his wife and now he's going on trial for murder. Uh, they're going to charge him for uh, for his role in his wife's death um, and this is based out of gross Point um, a uh, little place just north of uh, just just up Jefferson from uh, right. from Detroit proper. Um, and it's, it's kind of a cool tale because there's all kinds of, he was all involved in the BDSM community, et cetera, et cetera. And he was the son of a prominent judge. Uh, and uh, so we'll see. Trial comes up this uh, this summer, and then uh, the book should be out early next year. Um, what I'm hoping to do right now is to something uh, you mentioned, say, Clown Foxy, and I've been very interested in how the FBI handled this. I've never seen the FBI go after a fan base. I mean, we've had deadheads. I mean, come on, you got your hippies running all over the place selling acid, smoking weed. I guess that was okay, but uh, but for some reason they don't like these insane compounds. Um, There's a book in the works right now uh, that would be called Juggalo, and uh, this would be both an investigation of how the FBI has handled this, and uh, as well as the uh, the culture itself of, uh, of juggalos.
0: Yeah, that, um, I don't know if we're going to get that through. I would love to, I would love to do that book. The, uh, the, cl- yeah, the closing part of the book for, uh, you know, for folks who might be, uh, more into hip hop and rap music, the, uh, the, there's uh, a great chunk of the book that really at the end of maybe the last four to five chapters, which really, you know, bring that all to, to light and actually see the, uh, that Jack White and, uh, had Insane Clown Posse play on one of his records. Is that right?
1: Yeah. He did a single with, uh, Insane Clown Posse. And uh, on, on third man records his label, and people just lost their minds, and that's another thing Any time you know wasn't that the idea of music is to piss people off. remember way back the grown piss off the grown-ups right and uh and, and I remember I was talking to, to to Jack about it, and he said, yeah, it was a tremendous reaction to that, and he didn't he 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 kind of figured it might happen, but uh, but I thought anything that can piss people off that much
0: might it's definitely worth uh, getting into, you know. Where can people catch up with you online?
1: Uh, my website is avalanchefifty dot com. Uh you can catch me at Twitter at Penvengeance. Um let's see. Of course I have a Amazon author page. Um let's see, what else do I got? Uh that's about it, man. I I <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of time for that stuff, but uh, but I do do do, do enjoy uh, do enjoy the uh, the site and you can find all my books and order all the books there. And um,
0: they'll take you direct to the, uh, to the place to get them. Well, great. Steve uh, the author of Detroit Rock City, The Uncensored History of Detroit Rock and Roll in America's Lattice City, which was put out by DeCapo last year. Hey, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed it. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. No problem. You've been listening to a conversation with Steve Miller about his book, Detroit Rock City. The Uncensored History of Rock and Roll in America's Loudest City, which was published by Decapo Press in 2013. I'm Greg Renoff, your host. Thank you so much for listening. Please do me a favor and give us a like on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes to new books and pop music so you'll never miss another episode.